Welcome to You Talk Podcast, where you talk and we listen and learn. Today we're going to continue our interview with Phyllis, and she's going to tell us how she confronted her abuser and her mother. Also, she will tell us how she was able to heal and move on from the abuse, and give us tips for how we can overcome difficult things in our lives. There's a lot of fascinating material to listen to, so let's get started. Okay, so when we left off last time, you had finished high school and were getting ready to go to college. When I went to college, uh, my first year was at UNM in Albuquerque. My stepfather had obtained um, a sabbatical leave. Yeah, he was a trainer for the World Bank in Pakistan. And the plan was my mother was going to stay. uh, By this time, she had a job at New Mexico State, too. Uh, She was going to finish out the academic year. And then by summertime, she was going to go travel to see him and to join him at that time. And our plans after my first year of college was to go and travel. We would meet the stepfather in Europe, do some traveling there, and then I would travel back with them to Pakistan. And then sort of on my way back home to New Mexico, I was going to stop in England where I was an exchange student for a year. So that was the plan. Anyway, it was a very weird, weird summer. (laughs) My mother had all these idealized, I guess the long distance makes the heart grow fonder. Mm -hmm. And it certainly had that effect on my mother. And so she fantasized about how this reunion was going to be the best thing. And Hmm. in her mind, it solidified her idea that my stepfather was the love of her life. Oh, okay. And Or she was afraid of being alone. Or she was afraid of being alone. Well, I think she also had an affair with another professor that was there at New Mexico State. Mm. But when she started to compare life with him versus life with the stepfather, she decided it would be better with the stepfather. Okay. And again, distance can make your heart very lonely anyway. Mm-hmm. So when we met in Europe, he had just semi-broken up with his lover in Pakistan. And he didn't want to break up with her. So his anger really came out big time during this trip. And he would just lash out at my mother oh. at inappropriate times and... We really couldn't figure it out until we got to Pakistan, and I'm the one who figured it out first, because it's a very small foreign community, and I started a summertime job working at the international school, so I got to meet and interact with this small social group, and it happened to include that summer about five or six of us who were around the same age, and in fact, I started dating this guy whose father was a diplomat, and he got a job as the manager of the commissary. And so he handled, he was handling all the liquor sales. So he was, he was really, really popular, I'll say, in in that foreign (laughs) community. And he was a major alcoholic, unfortunately, and he was definitely experimenting with drugs. And so I was dating him as an escape Hmm. from the family and parents. And he's the one who told me about, well, you know your stepfather's having this open affair with this teacher. Wow. And she has a young daughter. Oh, he always picked the Uh women with daughters. It's like a twofer, a two-for-one. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know, really gross. 
And so then I confronted my mother, told her what I knew, and then she confronted him, and it sort of all came out. And so it was it was just an awful time. Mm. And then my mother would come to me, and we switched roles. Uh, she would come to me as though she needed counseling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did. I gave her my best advice. And um, Even though she had the PhD in psychology. Uh-huh, exactly. Did she ever go get help from a, a professional? No, she has never sought for counseling help because, in her opinion, quote, you know, she knows more than they do. Oh, okay. and she And she doesn't need it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So... I think her idea of getting um, a PhD in psychology was really a means by which she would learn to understand herself, but also as a means to manipulate others. Hmm. And that's what she's used her skills for. And how did what happened with you and your stepfather affect you during this time? I mean, it sounds like life went on as normal, but did it? Um, By this time... I had had numerous boyfriends and lovers, you know, so Mm. I I kind of did what his oldest daughter did, his eldest daughter did, which was escape into other relationships. But I was, I was smarter than that. I was not going to get pregnant, you know. Um, I, I think he was very resentful that I had other lovers than him and I chose them over him. Um... But by this time, he was already in another relationship and also grooming this vulnerable daughter. So I, I think I was out of sight, out of mind, which was fine. You know, he, he did tell me, I, I take it back, I confronted him first when I heard these rumors that he was having an affair. And he spun this story to me, and I believed it for a while, about how this was the love of his life, that they were always meant to be. And you know how I've told you about all these problems with your mother. Well, this one doesn't have those problems. And this is the situation and how she could be really good for me and how I could be good for her and for the good of everybody. You know, I really want to maintain this relationship with her. We resorted back to... I was his confidant role, and I also felt really sorry for the daughter who never had a father figure in her life and uh, how important it would be to have such a father figure, blah, blah, blah. And I, I took that bit of story, and I went back to the boyfriend and my circle of friends at the time, and I just asked him, you know, what is this daughter like? And it turns out that the scuttlebutt, and this was confirmed by some other older people too, was that the mother was on the make. She was known to be looking for a husband or a male protector. A sugar daddy. And her sugar daddy, and she was training her daughter to do the same. Hmm. And her daughter was no innocent flower. And that her daughter was encouraged to actually date sons of wealthy Pakistani families as well as other diplomatic families, you know, that that was important to curry those kind of connections. So, and she was only 15 or 16. And 
So I'm sitting here thinking about your mother and these other women and wondering if part of their behavior isn't because of the way society was. If there still weren't equal opportunities for women, maybe they felt like, you know, just like women have for hundreds of years, they needed to further themselves or at least secure their economic safety through a man. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with that socialization aspect, and that could be a contributing factor. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't excuse it. But I will say, it doesn't excuse it, but also with these, she was doing fine financially. She was doing fine, but for her, it was it was more of a game of who she could seduce at the time. And this was a pattern from whatever international school she came from. Hmm. He might say she was kind of a player and a deliberate housebreaker. uh, And it became sort of an ego thing with her. Yeah. So I, I don't know if, while I agree that was probably the conditioning that this woman had gone through. Mm -hmm. And she was passing on these survival skills to her young daughter. At the same time, it wasn't by necessity, from what I could tell. Okay. You know, it was funny because they were gone visiting family, and I knew they were going to come back to, to Pakistan, and I would have a chance to meet them. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of looking forward to meeting the daughter, but I can tell you, and, and I, was, I was prepared to kind of meet her as like a fellow sister. But the second I met her, I realized, oh, no, I do not trust her. Hmm. And she is as much of a manipulator as anybody. Yeah. So what kind of clues would you use to tell that this person was a manipulator? Like, was it an instinct or what? Probably it was more instinct than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, because I've struggled to be able to tell that in my own life in the past until it's too late. So. Right. Right. And again, part of the grooming and conditioning and the manipulation by both my mother and stepfather has been to suppress my natural instincts. Hmm. Um, But at the same time, they became a little more highly developed in some respects, not to their tactics, but to others. And so while I was blinded by my mother and stepfather's manipulative tactics, Mm -hmm. I was much more sensitive when it was occurring from others. Right. I'm not saying always, but I tended to not suppress or ignore my instincts as much. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But you could just tell that the mother and the daughter... They were just so fake. Hmm. They had a pretense about them. Mm -hmm. I I just knew they had ulterior motives, and and that's unfortunate. So that affair with your father ended, though? Um, Yes. It it was interesting because when I advised my mother, I told her, I said, you know, if I were in your situation, it's your decision, but if I were in your situation, how would I ever be able to trust him again? Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't. Right. You have to understand he he turned all of us against you. Because when she confronted him, his first response was, you know, let's feel sorry for her. And then if you really love me, you'll, you know, give me leave to continue my relationship with her because it's really in the in best interest of everybody. 
So weird. And I'm the one who went back to my mother and said, oh, these stories about how wonderful this lady is or her daughter is totally untrue. Mm-hmm. And I had instances back then, you know, to corroborate it. And I had sources of people mm-hmm. and examples, history that could all be corroborated. And so I said, you know, y- you have to think of what's best for you and what's best for my brother. Right. I can't make that decision for you. You have to make it. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they supposedly reconciled. And I confronted my stepfather, too, and, and I confronted him with the truth of who he was having an affair with and the daughter. And I told him I was angry for him for turning me against my mother right. and how he was a liar and um, he was being semi-conned himself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we left things where they had a, a, a fabulous reconciliation, my mother and, and my stepfather, And it worked because he told her that he could not consummate the relationship. What? That as he was about to consummate the relationship, her image kept coming back to him. And so he was physically unable to consummate the relationship. Oh, my. (laughs) So, exactly. Well, the other thing that I find interesting, and again, I didn't even really clicked to it until many years, many, many years later, is that part of his grooming technique was to define what sex is. And to me, and even the law supports this, because I have prosecuted criminal cases of sexual contact, to know better. But my stepfather convinced me that sex, real sex, had to be penal penetration. Hmm. And that all other forms did not count. Did not count for who? (laughs) For whom? (laughs) Exactly. It did not count for him. Okay. Or, you know, as part of the definition. So that's how he was able to get away with different kind of sexual contact Mm -hmm. and to condition me that that was okay. That was just affection that you can have for anybody, but it isn't sexual. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about him. Because is that something that goes on in the mind of child molesters, that as long as there is not intercourse, that it's not really hurting the child? Can you tell us, did it harm you in any way, physically or emotionally? Or Yeah. Why is it a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing what he did? It was, uh, it was very harmful for me because it was dishonest and it was very confusing And it was harmful because he was acting out of his own desires and his needs and misrepresenting that as being a legitimate form of love. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you truly love somebody, you want to do what's best in their interests, not your own. Right. And so it was a very selfish perspective Mm -hmm. that was very confusing Mm-hmm. that caused me to repress my instincts, repress my feelings, repress my reactions, so that I think, unfortunately, it came out later on. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I, I do think there is some internal illusion for a sexual predator that this kind of contact, touching somebody's breasts or buttocks, that as long as the victim doesn't really know that that is sexual contact, then it's okay. Right. I'm not getting caught. Yeah. But it's titillating 
for the predator. Mm-hmm. You know, it is part of the experience for them, what they can get away with. Right. And so I think, yes, it is harmful, mm-hmm. even if the victim doesn't, it doesn't consciously recognize it. I think there's a subconscious reaction of, whoa, this is wrong. I agree. This doesn't feel right. Right. And for children, when it's someone that is a parent or a teacher or an older relative or anyone who shouldn't be doing those things, is that harmful to them and confusing, even if they don't know what those behaviors mean? I mean, not only as a child, but later on in their adult life. I mean, does it leave them scarred in some way? Does it leave them confused about how to handle physical relationships in the future? Or maybe just confused about how to feel about themselves and their self-worth? Yes to everything you've asked. Mm -hmm. I I think there is this definite feeling of betrayal when you realize what has been happening and that you have been used and manipulated into maybe not fully accepting the contact, but not raising the alarm about it. Right. And in turn, the abuser then takes your non-reaction as an affirmation of, oh, this is okay, or this contact must be pleasing Mm. to my victim. Yeah. Because otherwise they would scream and yell. Hmm. But they're not protesting, so it must be okay. Right. But when the abused finds out or realizes, oh, my gosh, that person was getting off, you know, sexually getting off on touching me that way. Right. You feel really icky. You feel mm-hmm. grossed out. Yeah. And you feel that your personal boundaries have been violated, mm-hmm. that your trust has been betrayed, and that this person is acting out of selfishness, of greed. Right. And especially when they're in a position of authority and you are taught to respect their authority, mm-hmm. you are made to be vulnerable. Yeah. And that's the other process about grooming is that my parents, both of them, taught me to have no boundaries. Hmm. And, and that's how they did away with my pets. Oh. That, to me, was an ultimate boundary. If you can take away what I love ultimately what gives me comfort, then it's a short step to doing what you want with my body. Wow. You know? Yeah. That's interesting. So it's it's a series of steps. It is. That they do to condition you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But doing away with boundaries is a huge one. You know, when I was born with my biological parents, we were poor and food was a big deal. We received, I can't remember what it's called, but federal food. So, and, and apparently, the food that we were given, this Velveeta cheese block, mm-hmm. jars of peanut butter, jars of jam, these were food items that were kept in bomb shelters that they had to get rid of. So they would give it to us poor folks. Mm-hmm. And so food was a really big deal in my family. Right. I mean, I can't say I ever went without food, but I would say the food that I ate wasn't always ideal. Hmm. I mean, I grew up on peanut butter sandwiches, gallons of milk, free milk, and Velveeta cheese. So when my mother married my stepfather, he never had these food issues. And whenever we were out somewhere, or it, it didn't matter what the occasion was, 
he would always ask if he could have a bite of something that I had on my plate, even if he had the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I was expected to just let him, if I had an apple, he would want a bite of it. And he wouldn't just take a little nibble. He would take a bite that might be half of the entire apple. Hmm. I was expected to be okay with that. And and yes, that was a step in the process to uh, eliminating boundaries. So he taught you that what's yours is mine, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. That I had no boundaries. I had no way of saying no or refusing him or raising a hue and cry or an objection. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so you went on to go to college, and what did you study? Um, I was interested at the time in political science and economics. And because of my second year of college abroad, I knew at that point that I wanted to pursue a degree in law. I wanted to go to law school after that. And so it was important for me to get whatever bachelor's degree I could Mm -hmm. and then start applying for law school. And I knew that was my ticket out to freedom and to independence and success in a way, social success in a way, and also in an area that my mother and stepfather had no idea about. Right. They did not understand the field of law at all. So this would be your own thing and they couldn't control it. Exactly. Exactly. And did it work? Yes, very much so. And at some point, my mother tried to convince me to go into international law and then maybe politics. And they were rather horrified when I decided to practice in the field of criminal law. (laughs) Which is kind of harboring a criminal. She didn't think of it. She didn't think of it in that way, in those terms. So how do you think of it? I mean, why criminal law or why or she was? No, I mean, do you think of your stepfather as being guilty of a crime? Absolutely. And not only guilty of a crime, but guilty of several crimes. Okay. Uh, I am not the first and I was not the last Mm -hmm. that he uh, sexually abused. Right. Or he had uh, criminal sexual contact with. Yeah. So as an attorney, what would you advise others to do who may be too afraid to say anything or who are embarrassed? What would you advise them to do? Well, it's really hard because I did have to evaluate that issue with myself Mm -hmm. about whether or not I should have reported him and made a formal criminal complaint against him. One, I knew by the time I was a prosecutor that the statute of limitations had lapsed, that it was my word against his word. And then the other thing was, could I sue him, Hmm. you know, sue him for damages? Mm -hmm. And after going through not only the criminal process by that time, but also civil process, I realized that it was just it was just too emotionally draining. Yeah. It would be too emotionally draining for me, my family at the time. And, you know, by that time, I really had divorced myself of their lives. Hmm. And we weren't spending a lot of holidays together. We weren't visiting. We, we just kind of had minimum contact anyway. And by that time, they had moved from Las Cruces to California and... Um, So the contact became even less. 
And so I thought, just let bygones be bygones. Now, I did confront my mother, and I did garner a promise from her at the time that she had to check with other families, relatives that had young daughters, and to find out if he had to ask them point blank if they had been sexually abused by him, as well as to check with my brother. Because I had no idea if this was confined to females. It could have been an equal opportunity, non-gender specific behavior. So she assured me that she did. And it's funny because I confronted her during a funeral of one of our relatives in California. And she and I both traveled for the funeral services. And I told her. And at that time, she was very supportive. She told me she believed me and and she was sorry. And she said everything that you would hope your mother would say. Just hope I would get into some counseling and I would take care of myself. So I came back from that trip feeling very supported. Um, I had been in counseling and I continued to go. And then she called me and we met and she did a 180. And basically, you know, thought that I was lying, that if anything, I was a victim of these planted false memories. Oh, by your therapist. By my therapist. And she wanted to know who my therapist was. And she was going to contact my therapist and do all this research. And it was crazy. What do you think made her change her mind? Do you think she talked to your stepfather in the meantime? Yep. And I think she couldn't handle the truth. When, when she would evaluate her life and her role into contributing to this abusive situation, she couldn't handle that. Hmm. Um, she didn't want to feel responsible. Yeah. So it was much easier to believe that I would be lying about it or I was a victim of these repressed memories. And they even joined a support group. Oh, wow. Of families victimized by these false who were falsely accused. Yeah, falsely accused. It was just, it was crazy. Hmm. It was crazy. So by this time, honestly, I had even less contact with my mother, and I just we would go for years without having any contact. Wow. And then if we we did, it just was real minimum. Right. It was real minimum. It's a very complicated situation, isn't it? Because, I mean, we encourage children to come forward, and yet there are so many factors at play to make them afraid to come forward. Yes. I mean, they don't want to disrupt their family life. They don't want to be scorned or unbelieved. And just not fair that little kids should have to deal with that. I mean, it's just a really sad situation all around. It is. And and there's really no easy solution other than you have to make the decision that fits for you. Mm -hmm. And... I don't regret not reporting this to the police. Hmm. I do not regret not suing them, knowing that I I could have. But Hmm. I do regret not bringing, well, I don't even think this, I don't even think I have a reasonable regret because I alerted my mother early on. And she lied to me about, you know, well, I did check with all my family and friends about if my stepfather had sexually abused any of their daughters. And it turns out she didn't. Oh, no. And I only know this because I want to say about 10 years ago, she called me and said, 
I'm here in Albuquerque with the stepfather, and I want to meet with you. It was like, well, this is really weird. What about? And she said, well, let me meet with you first. And by this time, luckily, my husband was fully aware of her manipulative skills. I mean, mm-hmm. when I'm in a room with her, I automatically wuss out. I, I, I literally defer to her authority. Mm-hmm. I am like her slave. Wow. It is such an ingrained behavioral pattern that's really hard to break out of. Yeah. And so he has realized that if I'm ever to be near my mother, he has to be right by me to support me so I can stand up to her. Mm-hmm. But so I met her and she proceeded to tell me about how one of her best friends and mentors here in Albuquerque had revealed that her daughter had been sexually abused by my stepfather. Oh no. And how she was shocked and it made her realize that because of him she gave up her relationship with me right? because she believed that he wouldn't do such a thing. And here it was confirming that this happened, Hmm. but it was all about her. Uh, You know, by this time I'd already given up a relationship with her. I had moved on, had a child of my own, was not going to repeat the same mistakes that she made. Mm -hmm. So I moved on, but I felt really sorry for this girl. And I told her, I said, well, you should get in touch with the mother confirm that this happened to me and I said I'm really sorry you didn't do what I asked you to do which was check with all your friends and everybody he's had contact with who had young daughters if this happened to them and and anyway yeah I mean I can see why that would be a difficult conversation to have I mean like by the way has my husband molested your child yeah how do you even bring that up you know I think you do you ask them Mm -hmm. you know if you're a good enough friend, if you're a really close and friend and you care about them and you care about their children, right. you do. You approach them and you say, hi, you know, when you had your daughter and son stay with us this time, was your daughter okay after that visit? Right. Was she quiet? Was she upset? Yeah. And did you ever ask her if anything unusual or upsetting occurred? Okay. And leave it at that. You know, you don't have to even go any further and say, look, I don't want to alarm you, but um, I've just found out some things that might have happened during this time that could have greatly upset her. If it didn't happen, that's great. Okay. But for the sake of your daughter, sake of your family, ask her. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Just ask. Yeah. You know, I think there's ways of doing it that don't have to reveal too much until afterwards. Yeah, I see. But... No, because my mother is a narcissist, this wasn't, you know, in her way of thinking of her world. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so anyway, following, this was not the end of our interaction. Um, this is kind of a miraculous ending. But my mother made me promise from that meeting that she and my stepfather would have a meeting with me at my house the following day. And when I told my husband about it, he said, well, I'm going to be there, Yeah, you know, and if you don't speak out, I am. Right. So I know that my mother had this vision of we were going to have a kumbaya moment where we would make up and we'd go back to being the happy family that we were. Mm-hmm. He would say, I'm sorry. I'd say, I'm sorry. We'd all say we'd, we were sorry and be able to move forward. Right. And it was not like that at all. I laid into him 
I gave it to him full throttle. I, I told him what he did, told him how it was wrong. And it was interesting because at some point he said, you know, I have loved you more than I have loved anyone. And I interrupted him and I said, you didn't love me as a daughter. You didn't love me for what was in my best interest. Mm -hmm. You loved me as a concubine, as a piece of property, as somebody you could, you could have sex with. Mm -hmm. And I, I did not mince any words. And I told him, I said, you are a predatory sexual abuser, child abuser. Wow. It's interesting because I was on a roll. I was getting it all out, and I used that term. And I must have stopped to take a breath because in that instant, the stepfather said, you're right, I am a child sexual predator. Really? Was he just humoring no. you, or do you think he really... No, he was fully making an admission. My mother sighed in exasperation, like, oh, how could this be? And I am so much needing to vent all these years of frustration, thinking I'm never going to have this opportunity anymore. I roll right past his admission, and I continue to let him have it. Right. And I don't give him a chance to say anything, not even realizing, oh, my gosh, do you know the percentage of, of sexual predators who admit that they are sexual abusers, no. it's it's like zero. It's like negative. Really? Yeah, they never admit to it. Wow. And so for him to make such an admission, mm-hmm. and luckily, again, my husband was there, and he said, you know, I just saw him deflate, mm-hmm. deflate into this old, old man who lost everything, who lost his entire dignity. Right. right. You know, he was nothing. He was nobody. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting to think of how the abuser must feel if they could really come to a consciousness of how horrible it is what they've done. And maybe he needed being laid into like that to change, if change is possible. And with that kind of disorder, the statistics don't really show that change is very likely, but I guess it could happen. Yeah. But regardless of whether he changed or not, the important thing was that you were able to get your say out just so that you could have healing and, and you're the one that matters here. The abused person, the victim, is the one who matters. Yes. Well, I took that opportunity definitely to make it more about me (laughs) and how I felt and the hurt. And I did. I unleashed. I I didn't leave anything Hmm. left open. I even told him how I believed he had also uh, sexually abused his daughter Mm -hmm. and and that she was dying as a result of this. And then I also unleashed on my mother fully. I told her about her role in this whole thing, that she didn't, she failed to protect me. Mm-hmm. She failed to love me as a, as a mother should mm-hmm. and left me vulnerable, unprotected, and, you know, didn't yeah. believe me for all these years. Right. And she, all the time that I was unleashing, she was like curled up in a ball. It was very interesting. Wow. She was kind of hugging herself. She was, her shoulders were slumped forward. She wouldn't make eye contact. She looked like a kid that was being put in a corner for punishment. Well, that really paints a picture of how your mother was feeling too. You know, it's just tragic all around when this kind of abuse happens. It causes suffering to everyone when people are selfish. And I told her, I said, you know, I would like to have a relationship with you, but it's never going to happen unless we have you go to counseling. 
And we have a counselor that will mediate between us. Right, that makes sense. And you know, regardless of whether the abuser is criminally prosecuted or not, although I personally believe they should be in order to stop them, or at least have something filed with the law enforcement so that when another situation happens, there's a record of it. But regardless, I think the important thing here is to protect the children and to protect the future children who might be hurt. And so that would take someone like the parent or a bystander, you know, putting away their pride and letting people know what occurred, um, even if it's at a very close local level. I mean, especially tell family or extended family and friends, people that this abuser might come into contact with. That's my opinion. Right. Right. I, I think we are living in an age where, um, in some ways, too much information is overwhelming, mm-hmm. but it's been a good thing. So, honestly, with all of the media, with the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. the sexual abuse that has been occurring for millenniums <laughs> there, right. actually has been, I think, a good thing. Mm-hmm. to let people know that this type of behavior is wrong and inappropriate. Exactly. And I think it's getting the word out to young, vulnerable people, right. men and women, who could be in such a manipulated situation mm-hmm. and to have people look out for them. Right. So I think the word is getting out. Good. It was not going to get out if I had reported it to the police with my mother, you know, she is not the best broadcaster of, of these safety notices, mm-hmm. so to speak. I, I might have told you it's been about two years from Christmas, pre-Christmas, that I've ended all contact with her because she's pretty much gone. Even though he made a full confession and admission, he must have said something to her, right. uh, put another spin that she believes in his version. Like it was a false confession. He was manipulated into making it or something. No, I'm going to guess uh, something like that. But I'm going to guess that uh, it's more of the along the lines of, well, you know how how your daughter can lie and be deceiving. And she had an equal participatory role in this because she never complained about it before. And so she's a seductress. (laughs) Because pretty much my mother has now gone back to this belief that I had an equal, an equal role in the situation, which is I, I was the seductress. That's so ridiculous. Classic case of blaming the victim. Yeah. I mean, and why are you so devastated and emotionally hurt after all these years if you were the seductress? Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, a 16-year-old girl, an 8-year-old girl trying to seduce her stepfather i mean why it's just ridiculous it doesn't make sense and there were other people that corroborated your story because it happened to them yep but again they could have been seductresses also um seductresses as well of course it's funny how many there are that are so attracted to this older that's man. right that's right <laughs> he must really have something uh, going there there you go <laughs> That's that's why she's in love with him because you know he's such a desirable catch. Uh huh. Yeah. So anyway, obviously, I'm not the embittered, upset 
why me victim anymore, Mm -hmm. that I can speak about it frankly and openly from different angles. And yes, it has taken me quite the journey to get to this point. Mm -hmm. I have not only divorced myself of these relationships, my primary relationships here, but also with my mother. And that was the hardest thing of all. But it took me a long time to get to that point, the confidence to say, you know, I can't have a continued relationship where you keep wanting me to take the blame for a situation you put me, you put me in. Mm -hmm. And it's not helpful um, to anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, where if I have to keep saying, mom, look at the reality here. And Mm -hmm. I've been victimized and you're contributing aider and a better. Right. And I don't have this level of trust anymore. Yeah, and they're re-victimizing you if they want you to take the blame. Right, right. And it was interesting because my mother did go back to California, and she called me back, I don't know, a few months later, and she said, okay, your stepfather is going through counseling, which is really good. I think he needs it. But I've, I've decided that I really don't need it. What? And so it's interesting because I think she went to counseling because the message she somehow reformulated her mind was she needed counseling to support herself emotionally with the fact that she married a monster, whereas I was trying to get her into counseling to say, you need to do some work on yourself. And if you want to go forward in a relationship with me, we need to work on this because it's damaged and there's no trust here. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. You've got to keep yourself emotionally safe. Yeah. So how did you get to the point where you are now and what advice would you give to someone who is still struggling? Well, I, I believe that we're all given different challenges, mm-hmm. and it might be a mixed gift. It might be part curse and part gift, okay. and that it is a challenge that one should rise to meet if they can, mm-hmm. and that includes seeking avenues of healing. Part of that healing could be talk counseling, okay. and it could be talking to friends It could be just doing a lot of different types of healing. I think when we use the term healing, we think of going to our Western medical system, getting some antidepressants or or doing talk therapy. But there are many different avenues of healing that you can do the research on. And you might have to do a multitude of different therapies and healing avenues to help you. I think I became a Zen meditationer primarily as a way to heal. Hmm. I've gotten back into my love of dance through jazzercise. That has been a form of healing for me as well. I love to climb. I have been doing this Kurenderismo class Uh, which is a study of traditional and indigenous healing techniques. And even though they address physical symptoms, they're also addressing prior traumas that all people experience. And the belief is that if the trauma is not dealt with immediately, it will come out in your body in some form, in some illness or health condition. And the Spanish curanderismo theory is that 
when you treat somebody for trauma, you, you first treat them physically. Like as if they saw something shocking, like somebody being killed in front of them, then the spirit will disassociate itself from the body. Oh. And that enables the body to survive, run, not think about it, not process, but to run, get to a safe place. Right. And so their idea of healing is you treat the body as if it's in shock, as if it's suffering from the flu. So you feed, you feed the body chicken noodle soup. You put them to bed and rest and low activity. You comfort the body. You do ever what it takes and then once the body has physically healed, then you call back the spirit as if to say, you know, spirit, it's a safe situation again. You can come back into the body and it's safe again. And there's some medical studies that also verify this process that in times of shock or trauma, we disassociate ourselves. That is, the, that is a medical term, really. We disassociate ourselves because we go into an instinctive everyday mode to get through the day to survive before we can handle what really happened to us. Interesting. And so I, I've done a lot of reading, a lot of studying. There's a wonderful book called The Body Keeps Score, and it's by a Dutch psychiatrist who talks about the same thing, that if you don't take care of trauma, whatever it may be, it will manifest itself in a, in a physical illness or condition. Hmm. And then he goes through different methods of what is accepted by medical and psychological fields to be techniques that work or don't work. So it's your own personal self-journey. And I think the one thing to consider, I've had to consider this recently after listening to your earlier podcasts, and I must say, I, I listened to those podcasts, my reaction was, oh my goodness, they have suffered real dramatic traumas. Mm -hmm. And compared to what I've gone through, mine aren't that dramatic. And, and I had to realize, you know what, everybody goes through their own individualized, personalized traumatic experience. Right. And it doesn't matter if this would be traumatic for one person compared to another. I mean, my experience might not be so traumatic to somebody who was a victim of the Holocaust. Right. You know, they're more concerned about everything from the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessary. It's kind of irrelevant in terms of your own path to healing. Is You don't compare your trauma to somebody else and say, oh my gosh, if I had to suffer so many deaths of children, you know... Right. It doesn't minimize your own suffering just because someone else had a different amount of suffering. That's right. You know? Yes, that's better stated. Yeah, you still have to take care of you and overcome whatever your personal trial was. Exactly. Yeah. That's the important thing about one's journey is, is that it is personalized. Don't minimize your own journey, your own path to healing, and compare it to somebody else because that's, that's not their... That's not their journey. It's not your, their journey is not your journey either. Mm -hmm. And your reactions are going to be different. And because we're so individualized, our traumas are individualized, our paths of healing are, is also individualized. And for some mm -hmm. people, part of that path of healing might include litigation. 
it might include reporting to the police, um, seeking criminal prosecution, or filing a lawsuit to um, recover assets. Um, those are legitimate healing paths that each of us have to make ourselves. Right. We have a choice. And, yeah. Yep, you do definitely have a choice. And as much as I, I wouldn't wish for these things to have happened to anybody else, and I can't say, you know, I, I wanted this to happen to me. At the same time, I wouldn't change my life for anybody else's. Hmm. You know, I've learned so much on this path of life. Right. And I wouldn't be the person I am, empathetic, understanding, and interested in everybody if I hadn't undergone these experiences. Right. They are now a part of me. They are part of my knowledge and experience base. Mm-hmm. And, and they are what make me human. Right. And so I think in the long run, there is sort of a happy ending to this whole story and this incredible journey that's called my life. Right. That's awesome. You know, and so I know we focused a lot about this um, this treacherous part of my journey, but it doesn't diminish the joys that I have had in my life. And that is a successful marriage. We're about to celebrate our 26th anniversary. Wow. My son, who is tw- my son, who is 23, and he's a wonderful, wonderful young man. Right. And um, he never had much of a relationship with my mother, but he, he's very close to my brother, who also lives in California. And so he has gone back to travel and visit my brother, and he... He has come back and said, Mother, I don't know how you survive. And I'm just very thankful that you're my mom and, you know, I admire you so much. Wow. And, and that's like the greatest compliment you could ever receive, isn't Absolutely. It? And I think you stated it well that despite the trials that we've gone through, you can compare what you went through to what you have now and just be grateful for the joy that you have now and the accomplishments you have now in your life. And that's not to say that we won't have problems and trials in the future. One of the things that I've had to learn is that there really isn't going to be a perfect life. This idea that life is going to be perfect down the road, it just really doesn't exist. And I used to think if I was having any kind of hardship, I must not be doing something right. (laughs) And now I realize that everybody has hard things. And that doesn't mean they're going to be miserable their whole life. That doesn't mean they're not going to have joy in the future. So it's no reason to give up if you're going through something hard, because there's always going to be good things coming up ahead too. And the thing that makes life great for me is just the relationships with my family and my friends and other people and learning from them. And that's what makes life worthwhile in spite of the challenges. So that's what this podcast has been about for me is just to help people not to give up and to find hope and encouragement and I think you've been a great example of that, and I so appreciate you spending your time with us and especially sharing your personal story with us. And I mean, look at you. You've had an awesome life. I really have. You have a wonderful career. You've got a great marriage, wonderful son, and you're so smart and talented in many ways. And so you're just a great example to us, and I really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, Now would be a good time to pause. So we will continue this story in our next episode, and I hope you'll join us.
Thank you for listening to Utah Podcast. We hope you'll join us again. And by the way, we would love to have you as our guest on Utah Podcast. If you would like to tell your story in a full-length episode, please email us at utahpodcast at gmail.com. We also welcome your thoughts about this episode and any experiences you might like to share with our listeners. Just Skype an audio message to our username, utahpodcast at gmail.com. Please use a good USB mic if possible. Thanks. Can't wait to hear from you.